Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, in his day job, Thomas Garavan is a Professor of Leadership Practice in UCC. But for a few years in his private life, he was something of a detective following clues, trying effectively to find a class of missing persons. That's because Thomas discovered that his mother's early life was not what he had thought. That she had, in fact, at one point, six siblings all of whom had been taken from their parents by the state at a very young age, installed in a mother and baby home, and then sent out to various foster parents, where they had sometimes hugely contrasting experiences, going from a loving household to places where there was abuse and even slave labour. One of the more tragic aspects of this story is that many of these brothers and sisters were unaware that they had other siblings as their family had been rent asunder when they were toddlers. Their story goes to the heart of the dark side of life in this state in which women and children in particular were treated as second-class citizens, sometimes with devastating and lifelong consequences. Thomas Garavan's story features in the Irish Examiner this week in a piece written by Clodagh Finn, and it is available on the website. And Thomas is our guest on today's podcast. Thomas, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Mick. I'm delighted to be here. Now, Thomas, just to go back, I suppose, the first discovery, sort of, as we might put it, you grew up, as I understand, in Newport County, Mayo, and you'd no idea of your mother's background until an incident when you were about 12 years of age. I had no idea whatsoever, even though I might have on occasion slightly wondered what it was an incident, as you say, in, in that same said year when uh, two ladies called to my mother's house and my father's house and said they were looking to meet my mother. My mother wasn't there at the time, and neither was my father. And I said, who are you? And they said, oh, Mary says, I'm your mother's sister. And the lady was Russia, whose name was Kathleen, said, oh, I'm your I'm your first cousin, I'm Mary's daughter. And I said, wonderful to meet you in my own uh, naive way then. And I welcomed them into the house. And about 10 minutes later, my mum arrived home. And the reason they came to see us, I think, was because we had just moved into a new house, a county council house. We used to live in a thatched cottage across the road and we moved into a new house and they came down to visit my mother in the house. And your aunt, as you know, that was your first encounter with your aunt and your cousin. On one level, I suppose, Thomas, one could understand that kind of scenario if they were living in the far side of the world and for whatever reason they found themselves here, but they weren't living too far away. They were living 
seven miles away in Westporton County, Mayo. And that's where they were living. And my mother hadn't seen my her sister for quite a long time, even though they were living at that uh, short distance away. Now, I did have an inkling, all right, I should say younger, I realized that I might have cousins because I then remembered meeting when I was coming out of school, I was about seven years of age, meeting this lovely lady down at the end of the Bray in Newport. And she came up and talked to me and said hello to me and my brother, because my brother's a twin. And uh, I wondered who she was. And I went home and I might have remember saying it to my mother, but I was only seven then. I didn't know what answer I got. But she turned out the lady I met on the on the bray that day came out to see me was the lady who was at the front door the day I arrived or let them welcome them to the house. Kathleen, that was my first cousin. And then you discovered that um, the woman you thought was your grandmother. Yes. Was actually your mother's foster mother. And her name, we used to call her Auntie. And her name was, she was Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Chambers. She was known as a Mrs. Jack Chambers and she lived in Newport and she lived in the farm exactly next to the farm that my father had. She was literally our next door neighbor. All you had to do was cross the fields and go and visit her. From the age of about seven or eight, we used to go over and visit them quite a bit with my mother. But there was nothing ever said about it. And then we started to help them because uh, Mrs. Chambers' husband had died very young. And my mother vividly remembers his death because she found him dead in the bed. <laughs> and that was our foster father. And uh, But Mrs. Chambers then had another foster child in the house who stayed with her. And they had a farm. And we used to help out to make the hay. And my father used to help out to... Um, uh, reek the haze to say, bring it all in and put up the hay. And he used to also help them around the house. So there was a very good, friendly relationship between uh, the, Mrs. Chambers and, and, and our family. But we never knew. We always thought, um, all we all thought she was our aunt. Because I remember on the, or our grandmother, I should say, because on the day I have our, our confirmation, I remember her, her giving us vividly half crowns which was a nice little bit of money then to be given a half crown. And uh, that was it. But it never, no word was ever uttered that, oh, this isn't your granny at all. And the other lady isn't your mother's sister. Uh, she's your, she's a foster mother to my mother. That was never mentioned whatsoever. So at what point then, Thomas, did you sort of begin to get to the stage of curiosity where you wanted to find out about your mother's background or did she open up to you or, or how, how did well, that develop? she opened up in little bits, but really I went to school in Westport in the Christian Brothers School. I think I went, yeah, 1973, I went to the CBS in Westport and um, I remember uh, my aunt told me, well, now you're coming up to school you better come into me. I own. A, I'm manage, work in a little restaurant on the on Bridge Street in Westport. And please come in and talk to me, and I'll give you a cup of tea every day. And I went in to talk to her, and that really was the basis on which we started to. She started to tell me little bits about her family, and she told me about her mother, and she also told me about her father. And where it happened to him. And then eventually she came out and she said, "Oh, you, I don't know if you know, I have another sister." I said, no, I don't know. And her name is Annie. And where does she live? She lives in Ballyhonus. And when did you last see her? Oh, I haven't seen her in about 20 years. So I gradually she started to get bits and pieces going. 
and you put it all together. But to be honest, I didn't do much about it really uh, while I was going through my uh, college, school years or even until my college years. I went in, in IIT, as it was known then, it's now UL. I was on my cooperative experience in, um, in third year, I think, and that's when I... Uh, first came into more direct exposure with the fact that um, my mother's mother was still living and a cousin of my father's told me that and he had met her in the hospital in Castle Bar and he said, oh, I want to pass on this message to your mother. And I told my mother about it and of course initially, oh, I don't know anything about her, not in a very nice way because there wasn't, they were quite negative and there was a lot of anger towards her. And I then also told my aunt and my aunt says, yeah, well, let her stay there. That was her reaction initially. But that's when I first realized uh, that, um, God, she was still alive. And at that stage, she would have been, I think, around um, 79 years of age. So just to frame it, Thomas, the scenario you're painting is one in which you begin to hear snippets through your aunt, whom you meet in town in school, rather than your mother. And what what emerges initially is a scenario in which the three sisters, your mother, Annie and Mary, and their natural mother, all live in a relatively small area in Mayo, yet there was very little contact between any of them. And you know what? The fact that they weren't brought up as children might have something to do to explain that. But my mother didn't know about her sisters. My mother was fostered out to Newport. She was about nine, I think. There's a bit of a debate on what age she was because the records in Tune are somewhat contradictory in a way. But she she met her sisters one day in the church in Newport and they came up to her and told her that they were her sisters. There was two of them. And the reason that they knew about each other is that they were both fostered to the same home in Newport at different times, mind you, one in 1934 and the other in 1937-ish around. So they were fostered, to, but they two of them happened to arrive in the same house and they were in church in Newport and they said it to my mother. And of course, my mother's foster mother was sort of poo-pooing the idea, no, they couldn't be her sisters. But my aunt, who's a very assertive woman and she's still alive, uh, said, oh, we are. And that's how they got to know each other. And they right. got to know each other very well, reasonably well, as well as one could in that state. But then the whole thing was, it was um, um, my aunt be, became pregnant quite young. And the other lady who was in the house, the sister who was in the house, was taken out of the house and put into another fostering arrangement. And that sort of broke it all up for a while. And then, but my mother and my aunt, Mary, they contacted each other. They were regularly in contact with each other. And Mary has come up to visit to my mother and father's house. But then she was, she left, she went, she left Newport, she went to Westport. And they sort of lost contact for a while, even though it was, as you say, a very short distance. And they did know about their mother, as it turned out. They knew that their mother was possibly living in Ballinan, County Mayo. But there was no... Um, great desire to go and find her. But my aunt did go and meet, uh, go to find her and found her in Balanay, I think in the 1967 or 68, 67, I think. And okay. but she wasn't nice to her. She sent her, sent her off again and sort of denied uh, knowing her or any of that or didn't really want to know her. That was the basic thing. But they never, my aunt mother never bothered to go and meet her or find her. And neither did my other aunt. However, uh, I then discovered that my other aunt lived with her 
for, for a period of time from the age of 13 until she was about 19. And then she got married. Uh, the mother basically married her off to a guy who was quite a degree older than her. And she went off to live in Ballyhonas in County Mayo. So, and my mother never met my other sister, her sister, Annie, or oh, at least it must be 50, 50 years at least, must be, before they, okay. they met, yeah. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And just, I suppose, just to put it back in context, taking it all the way back to how they ended up in uh, in Tume, Normally, and, and, and the image that most people have, and, and for the majority, even though as it turns out, there is a large minority that's not the case, we were always under the impression that the children who ended up there, they tended to be there with what were called unmarried mothers at the time, and they tended to come from homes where, the, where their parents were not married. But your mother's parents were married, and despite that, and we, we, we'll get to the other four siblings in a minute, but just park that a second. But despite that, all seven of their children were effectively taken off them by the state and put in there. Do we know why? First of all, the, they were taken off them from around from 1934 right up to 1940. Do we know why? It isn't totally clear why. However, it was inferred in some notes that the social worker read out to me that, well, they had first had no fixed abode because on every single birth cert bar one, there is no address for the child, the birth of the child or where they were from, the parents. There are no fixed abode on all of them. Then it was clear he was variously described, the father, as a labourer who, and from what I could gather from the very poor things that's in Tume Home, they had, um, they didn't have the economic means. The first of all, had a roof over their head and they were obviously relying on getting accommodation where everyone went working. And uh, there would appear to be that there might have been a problem with alcohol uh, in the in the family as well. So the child officer, it's very clear that the child officer was continually possibly on their case at various stages because that was more no more vividly illustrated than when my mother went into care, into Tume Home. She went in and out three times, taken out and going, taken out, put in, was left there for a month or two, taken out again, put in, taken out again and put in. And so also was her brother at the same time. And that's the only record I have where two children came in, at, uh, two siblings came in at the same time 
we're taken out, we're back in again, we're taken out, and then we're finally taken in. So it suggested to me that right, there was something going on that um, the uh, parents were not able to look after the kids, and but there was maybe a bit of a struggle going on around could they look after them? They were taking them out. But that's, so it's still not clear. I want to get, I'd love to get access to the records and I put in uh, under this new search legislation, I want to find out what's available, which says something about the children, the mothers, the mother and father, because surely Mayo County Council, who were they responsible for this, would possibly have some record. Yeah. And maybe that record was sent to the, um, to the commission. I don't know. That's the Commission on Mother and Baby Yeah, homes the Commission on Mother and Baby Because they to, got all this Interestingly, too, Thomas, I, I think it's over 600 of the yeah. 3,000 plus child residents in Tune between 1925 and 1961 were children of married or widowed parents. But the scenario saw was that one way or the other, the seven children were taken into care. They were then at some point or other, all were fostered out to completely different families. So to all intents and purposes, they were unaware, certainly up to a certain point, that they even had siblings or the, the, the background from their own lives. And the interesting thing is, given the time period, 1934 to 1940, it would be reasonable to assume that it might be the one child officer, because that's what they were called, I believe, at that time, that might have been responsible for all that fostering effort. So clearly, the child officer surely would have, you would have thought, would have told them a little bit about where they're, uh, what to call it. But they were all told different things with the child officer. For example, my uncle told me that he was told that his mother and father were dead and that he was an only child. And my other uncle in UK, who I found, he's, they're both dead now. He told me that he was likewise told that he was from, that his mother and father were no longer alive. And that's why he was taken into Tomb Home. And that's why then he was fostered out. So they were all told different things. And I know my mother told me, because she opened up about it now and again, said, oh, well, the child officer came to visit us and told us now, well, um, your father has died. She told him, uh, my mother, that her father had died. That was correct, actually. He had died. He died in 1944. He died a very young man. And he died in the county home in Castlebar, which is now St. Joseph's Hospital. But he died there, and his wife never came to, pick it, to collect his, his um, body. And they sent a letter to his oldest daughter, my Aunt Mary, asking her to come and collect it. And, of course, she wasn't in a position to come and collect it. So he ultimately was buried, because it says it, he was buried in a pauper's grave in Castlebar. So right. they had to, so they got different things all right from from the uh, child officer about their situation, but she never told them about each other or that their siblings around there. Right. Or if she did tell them, they have no great recollection of it or whatever. Okay, and and then as you say, it, it turned out that your grandmother was still alive. She then eventually died. And at her funeral, you were to discover that there were actually four siblings. Am I correct there? There were four other siblings whom you hadn't known about there yeah, before. that was it. We, we were at the, the funeral was very interesting in that it was, what to call it, it was, um, um, my mother was meeting some of her cousins. She, she knew these cousins, that's the thing. She knew of them, she never met them, down in Ballina. And, uh, they, but at that, I asked the question of one of them, is that our full extent of her children, of her family? And your man said, oh, I don't think it, the cousin 
our cousin John, say he's dead now. He died last year. And uh, said, I don't think it is. Uh, he said, there's more behind this than meets the eye. And what we don't know, she never told us. She lived up the town for 40 years and she never came to visit her sisters or her brother or that type of thing in Ballina. So clearly she was a loner. And but that was that that was the first inkling then that I said, hmm, there's more to this now than meets the eye. And I suspect that there was more, there are more were more children. And I think you were to find out the, the, the other uh, female sibling, the other sister, uh, Teresa, I think her name was. She had died a few months after. Yeah, but we to... never knew that until many years later. Uh, but I did. Yeah. I remember I t- just to pick it up there. I, I decided I graduated from UL or NIT then. And I was I got a job there fairly quickly. And I decided I was going to get my mother's birth cert and I was going to march my way to the Irish Life building in Dublin where all the registry of births and deaths and marriages were. And I said, I'm going to see, can I find? And I went in there with a friend of mine on the day and we I started and he was helping me. He was into research as well. And he, we found my mother and then he said, well, we'll work back from there now and we'll work forward. So I knew about my two aunts. So that was fine. And I said, I knew when my aunt, my mother and grandmother and grandfather got married. So then I said, right, we'll work forward. And then I start, oh, and then I find one in 1935. I said, that's another sister, knew nothing about her. Then I find two in 1937, knew nothing about them. And then I find another one in 1940. But these were the birthdates. And that was it then, because my that appears to be it. And we stopped at that stage. And uh, that was it. And then I said, mm. and I sold it. I said this to my mother and my aunt and my other aunt at a later point. And I said, oh, did you know anything about these? And no, um, but my aunt, funny enough to say, I often wondered, she says, if we had, I often wondered. And I was just very curious about it. Well, I said, you do. You had four siblings. And it wasn't until many, many years later, even after I did a whole piece of search that I discovered that Teresa Angela had died. I couldn't find any marriage record for her or anything like that. And I couldn't find a birth cert for her. And the reason was that they had not registered her death as Teresa Daly. They had registered her as Angela Daly, and that was her second name. And that totally knocked me off. And then once I was told that she had died by the social worker around 2011, I'm sure, then I said... I went and found the death search a few days afterwards. And I, and then I rang up Catherine Corliss, who was doing work. And I said, does her name appear on your list, Catherine? And uh, I take contact through Facebook first. And oh, she said, it does. Her name is there. And she's she's one of my, of the people that I found on, on the death search, uh, that I found who died in there. And that was then. But the others, there was no record of them, other than a, a very odd thing. Yes. My uncle Joe... Michael Joseph, I found a death cert for him the same time as I found his birth cert in that search, in, that I, which was about 1983, I think. And I said, weird. So I didn't bother looking for him. I said, he's dead, he's gone. And it wasn't until 2011 that I visited, the, when I met the social worker, that she told me, oh, um, you have a brother, you have an uncle called Michael Joseph Daly, and he was fostered out, blah, 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 uh, in Kitchima, and he was four years of age or six years of age. I said, that's weird because I got a death cert from, and I actually had the death cert with me in a folder that I brought to them. Well, she said, that's wrong because he's, our records indicate that he was fostered. 
And it turned and out. You were was. to find out one of your uncles had immigrated to New Mexico and well, joined the religious he order. He immigrated to England first. And he actually worked, and I've discovered since loads of things, I got several emails during the week about him from people who knew him. Uh, he was he was conscripted into the British Army at one point and he had to go to Northern Ireland. And the reason I knew that is he told me, uh, when I met him, he told me about after two or three times of meeting that he was getting a small little pension from the British Army, a large amount. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't uh, buy tea on it. But that he told me he was in the North for a few months and he absolutely hated it. But he went over to England and he um, started working as a bus conductor. And then he went to London and he started to train. Or he came home then. He came home again uh, to his foster parents who he really loved. And then he went back to England and he had they had trained him to be a butcher and he worked as a butcher in England until he got a late vocation and he decided to join the Little Brothers of the Good Shepherd. And that was, they were founded by Matthias. Brother Matthias was the name of the founder, I think, of that same said order. And when he did that then, he was for he spent a large number, quite a number of years in Hamilton in Canada, and then he went to came over to England to Birmingham or to um, uh, not Birmingham one other place I'll think of in a minute where he they had a an or they had a an order had a house, and then he worked in America he worked in uh, he was in New Mexico when I found him then he went to Momensk in Chicago, and then he went to a, a home in New Jersey. And that's where he lived out, and then he 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 lived there, and he died. He got, got cancer, but he was he joined the the he joined that vocation very late, quite mature in right. his life. Your other brother, then you found in Birmingham. I did, and when well, I found the other one in Telford, I found two of them. The other, my other uncle, you mean? My other uncle, I found your in, uncle. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. My other uncle, I found in Birmingham through a long search and awfully hard to find him because there were a lot of John Daly's, a lot of them. When you start to serve this, research the British Register of Electorates, loads of them come up. But eventually I cottoned that it might be him and uh, I found him after three or four false uh, dawns where I went to places and it wasn't. And he was most resident and living on his own, had never married and had worked as a council worker and then had John sort of living his life out. He was, he loved going to the bookies and all that type of stuff. So I suppose he was at the mindset, do I want to be troubled at this stage by telling me all of that? But again, he did tell me he never knew anything about his, about his, his relatives. Nothing. He had no idea that he had any siblings. So that was him. Then the other guy, Edward, took me a while to crack him after finding out where he'd been fostered to. I couldn't work out where he'd gone to, but eventually I worked it out uh, because I was told by a person from Lewisburg who I went to talk to or phone called, made a call to, oh, I think the last time I heard of Joe, he was living in in Telford in, in the UK. And, or, uh, uh, sorry, Edward was living in Telford. And lo and behold, it turned out he was. And I eventually found him through the Registry of Elections. I bought a, a special subscription to get into, see could I get all the electoral rolls. And his name appeared on it. And then there was another name, and Edward, two Edwards, and they were very close to each other. And the only other great piece of information I found out was that his wife's name was Kathleen. And lo and behold, her name appeared as well, but living at a different location from him. And of course, I had been told by the guy who I met in 
Lewisburg that they might have not been may, may not have been married anymore and it turned out they weren't but they're still very good friends so that's how I found and, and so two of the brothers were again not dissimilar to in Mayo two of the brothers were living not too far apart from each other at one stage three of them were because because Joe was living in Wolverhampton Joe right. that's where he was he was in a house in Wolverhampton and they had no idea that they were brothers none whatsoever and two of them were twins Two of them were twins. Yeah, John and John and, and Ju- Michael Joseph were twins. Never knew about each other and uh, never had anything to do. And in fact, the real shameful thing is that the record in Chum Home has no record of my uncle, John, being in Chum Home. But he told me he was there. But the records in Chum Home are not to be relied on because they essentially consisted of a big ledger a ledger with all these names in it, with information on it, and some of the information missing. They can't tell me exactly when my aunt Mary went in. She thinks she went in in 1934, she's still alive. Uh, but they can tell me when she came out. And they can't tell me when my late aunt Annie went in, but the records tell me when she came out as well. But they don't have records of dates of when she came in, which begs a great question. How in the hell are they going to determine if, if their relatives now want to, and my aunt Mary certainly wants to bring a claim under this redress scheme, how are they going to verify, well, what period of time was she in the home from, in Chum Home? I'll come to that, the commission in a second, but just in, in terms of the personal aspect of the family initially, having spoken, as you did before, most of them, unfortunately, are deceased now, but having spoken to a number of them, and including your mother and, and one of your aunts, whom I believe are still alive, do you get the sense in terms of they feel a great void and that there was some salvation in what was ultimately discovered or or is it something that they just took as being part of their lives? No, I actually think, first of all, I think they felt a great stigma. My mother and my aunt in particular and my other aunt felt that there was a stigma that they had been put into the home and that there was somewhat maybe less than first-class citizens, they might be second-class or third-class. That was, and they had a great feeling of inferiority about themselves as a result of that. Of that, there's no doubt. And likewise, when I met my uncle, Joe, he said the same thing to me. You know, I felt, God, I had no family. I didn't know who I was. All I was was a chattel going around from place to place, different foster homes, and they're making me work extremely hard. So they felt greatly agreed by that. And, um, and my aunt in particular still feels very aggrieved and so does my mother. But they felt, God, um, what's going on here? And then there was all this um, sort of remorse later when they found out, oh, well, if we'd known this earlier, wouldn't it be lovely? And we'd have known uh, all about this, our brothers that we didn't have and we'd love to have our brothers and all of that type of stuff. So there was a lot of that gone on. But on the other hand, then, you know, there was another little bit says, it all went on, but do I really want to go back into it? Do I want to know any more? Do I want to bring up all these bad things that happened? And there was kind of saying, no, let's sleep in dogs lie a little bit. Were they able to connect with each other at all, Thomas? Yes, briefly, yes, absolutely. But not physically, but through phone calls and all that type of thing and, and all of that. But that felt all, if you don't mind me saying, so awfully surreal to them. But at the same time, uh, they, they used to send Christmas cards to each other. Uh, afterwards and that was lovely uh, and uh, you know that was some kind of connection and the fact that my mother and my aunt had a brother a brother a Christian brother that actually he was held in higher status I think than the others 
<laughs> in the sense that, uh, oh, he was, uh, that was a lovely thing to have in the family. And he used to send them little crosses through me, a little cross or a, rep, a relic of something that they, they loved and they had, in their, they had in their houses. Yeah. And your experience in terms of researching records allied to your experience of how the Mother and Baby Home Commission went about its work what kind of feelings has that left you with? Well, I, I think the, right, I thought the mother and uh, the, the commission, the mother and baby home commission was a bit of a joke, really, because my mother and my aunt were not in a position, they didn't feel they could articulate their experiences, they didn't want to go to do it. And they wanted me to be, to do that. But of course, uh, I was run, run round in circles at the commission. Oh, we don't want you. Oh, uh, we want you to meet a secondary level rather than meeting the commissioner, uh, the person who is responsible for it. And I said at the end, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that. But they made life difficult for me. So I just ignored it. And I just said, I'm going to continue my merry way to find out what records I can myself. But what I found out, of course, in the Tomb Home thing is that it's most unreliable, the records. They were just kept there and they are not to be trusted totally because there are different dates and there are contradictions and stuff like that involved in it. And I am very, I was most, most disappointed with the um, final report because the narrative was ultimately all about the mothers who went in there and the babies who were from unmarried but as you rightly said there were 600 plus other families who went into Tomb Home who had parents and that narrative didn't come through at all in the particular thing and it's actually totally forgotten for in the redress scheme because all of these uh, children were all fostered by an agent of the state, in this case a child officer, and to try and limit any redress to the time they were in and not to the time that they were sent out into these foster homes. And invariably every one of them, um, bar one, uh, even all six of them, all, all of them had a terrible time at some point in their foster experience. Admittedly, Uncle Joe was in three different foster homes and the third one turned out to be wonderful. And that was great for him. Uh, but the other two were terrible. And my aunt's was terrible. And so were the others. They were all... So the state seemed to want to have nothing to do with that, even though um, it was their officers who committed these individuals to these homes and actually paid money to the foster parents to look after their children. Because the interesting thing in it is the language. And when you look at, oh, the contract was signed on JX. That type of language appears in the thing in the in the records to say, oh, this is the day on which we agreed the monies for to send the child out to be literally in most cases become a slave of the individuals who took her out, him or her out. And yourself, Thomas, finally, in terms of the impact it's had on you, the the nature of the discovery, and I suppose also the the, the, the realization of the manner in which the state had treated your mother and her siblings. Well, in terms of me, I initially had a very idealistic view of the whole thing. I really wanted to find out, Jesus, if, if, if my parents, if my mother has siblings out there, where are they? I'd love to know about them. I'd love to meet them. So there was that sort of idealistic, beautiful idea that I was going to find them. And ultimately I did. And it all turned out in general to be a very, very positive experience. So for me, that was putting the circle back a bit. And they were all reconnected in some way and that we knew about them, we knew where they lived or if they died, we knew that they, why they died, all of that. So it was filling out, filling in all the shading of it. And then, of course, I found out 
more about where my mother's father came from, because that was a bit of a black box. We didn't know precisely where he was from. Uh, but he was, we thought he was from Castlebar initially, but he wasn't. He was from outside uh, Clare Morris in a, in a village called Irish Town. But so that was lovely, all of that. But then you get all this. Then I became extremely disillusioned by the whole commission process, but also by this. I participated in about four consultations and uh, meetings with the Minister for Children, um, uh, Roger Kogorman. And we were told the sun, moon and stars and they were all listening to us and they were all going to have a very uh, a, a victim-centred um, compensation scheme and that all this. But the whole thing has taken invariably too long and it's gone on and they're just, people are just... And uh, my, my mom now is, she has dementia, so she doesn't know much about what's going on. But there's a lot of them like that. And I suspect my aunt must be one of the oldest memory, living people who've been in Tomb Home because she's 94. And she went in in 1934. So that's a long time back. And all of this is dragging out. And they haven't finalized yet. The legislation were up to Christmas. And he promised his dates when we met him that he was going to do X, Y, and Z. And not one of those dates were ever realised or met and it made me totally disillusioned about the whole thing. Yeah, and I suppose, as you say, it's an unfinished story yet. There's no question about that. Um, but it's also a reflection of how so many people in this country were so wronged by the, the, the mores of the time and how the state was run. Thomas Garavan, thank you very much for sharing that with us today. And thank you, and I'm thrilled to have done it. Thank you so much. Thanks. I'd also like to thank, as always, our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. That's it for this week. We'll see you again next week. Take it handy. <laughs>